Hello, and welcome to the Transform Trauma podcast. My name is Whitney, and I am the Director of Trauma-Informed Practice and Systems Transformation with the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, or CTIP. And I'm here with Jesse, our Executive Director. And we're thrilled today to have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Sandra Bloom as our guest to talk about being responsive to trauma in our systems and in particular, our workplaces. And to learn a bit about Dr. Bloom's background beyond what we discuss here, as well as to check out her books and other amazing work, please be sure to check out the description of this episode. So welcome, Dr. Bloom. We're delighted to be with you today. Well, thank you, Whitney. And thank you, Jesse. It's good to be here. And to begin, since you do have such a rich and storied career, Jesse and I thought a great starting point would be to invite you to share a bit about what you would consider to be the key parts of the story that brought you here with us today, you know, the things that called you to this work, as well as any striking learnings or aha moments that emerged along the way. I'd be happy to. I have a long story because I'm old. So I want to give you a, a kind of a context for my, what my story really. Um, I uh, started out uh, in psychiatry when I was a teenager as a first as a secretary on Temple Hospital's psychiatric unit and then as a, a mental health tech on the on the unit and so i as we were preparing for this i was thinking about you know what was i immersed in way back then which is in the 1960s that then kind of becomes part of my life story and i think what i was immersed in was what psychiatry was in the first part of the 20th century. And it was largely influenced by the most important psychiatrist of the day, who was a guy named Adolf Meyer, who was at John Hopkins. And he talked about common sense psychiatry. He was a, himself an immigrant uh, and he talked about how human beings were programmed basically to adapt to all kinds of changing conditions and that what happened to people was that they developed mental disorders as a result of adaptive failure and the inability to adjust to whatever was going on and he he emphasized when i looked back at his work later. I didn't know this then. <laughs> he said the boundary between the mentally well and mentally ill people's fluid because normal people can become ill if exposed to sufficiently severe trauma. An untoward mixture of noxious environment and psychic conflict causes mental illness. It's the story that counts in a person. So, that was knowledge that was embedded in the way people thought in those days that I was exposed to, even though I didn't know about Adolf. Nobody talked about Adolf Meyer and common sense psychiatry. And I learned later that he had trained a guy named Tregant Burrow, who was one of the founders of the American Psychoanalytic Association and had been analyzed by Carl Jung in Switzerland. And Trigant was really the founder of group therapy, un unacknowledged, because he gave up a successful analytic practice because he came to believe that it was the society that was sick. And he created an alternative community that, that he and his colleagues and friends lived in for 30 years trying to figure out what was wrong with our entire species. And he said, individual discord is but the symptom of a social disorder. It's society that is the patient. So those ideas 
it were influencing me, even though I didn't I didn't know it at the time. What I did know, which was explicit when I was working as a mental health tech and then as a medical student and then as a psychiatric resident through the 1960s and 70s, was the main school of thought, which was called social psychiatry. So it was the main branch at the time when I was training, and it focused on the interpersonal and cultural context of of all of the problems that we were seeing. And what does it take to create mental well-being for people? So that was part of the conversation. And this was this all came about as a result of World War II. So when, you know, everybody, the war was over and there was a burgeoning understanding that, wow, we have to look at everything in the culture because this must never happen again. We just almost destroyed the whole world and the nuclear bomb had gone off and it was really a scary, important time like today. And William Menninger, the Menninger brothers, were two psychiatrists who founded the Menninger Clinic, famous in Kansas. And in 1945, he wrote that every institution, every institution. So when we get to the workplace, that's really important. Every institution in American society has to evaluate its program in terms of the contribution to individual and group mental health and that it was vital to determine the more serious community-caused sources of emotional stress. Wow. Right? And that was 1945. So the people that taught me, they were writing about that. They were talking about that. They were teaching us about that. And by 1982, uh, George Albee, who was a psychologist who really focused on prevention, said to argue that there are a number of separate and discrete mental illnesses, each with a separate but undiscovered cause, obscures or blocks consideration of the possibility that most emotional disturbances are a result of dehumanization, powerlessness, and victimization by social cruelty. 1982. And one of the things I want to, the reason for talking about this and that I want to emphasize for your listeners is that knowledge keeps getting lost. It keeps getting disregarded. We've known about the impact of trauma as long as there's been recorded history goes all the way back to there's record stuff in Mesopotamian literature, certainly a lot of the Greek literature and Shakespeare. It doesn't matter where you go. There's always uh, an emphasis on the importance of trauma and what it does to people. And yet it kept getting forgotten. So there's always a danger today that it will be forgotten again. And that's part of what I want people to get. So although I was immersed in all this and I understood, you know, this was part of the context of my experience throughout my training. It really wasn't until 1980 when I had my colleagues and I had created our own psychiatric unit in a semi-rural community about an hour north of Philadelphia. And I had been asked to see a young woman, a teenager, who was the daughter of a nurse that I had worked with. And in my first book, I call her Dawn. And her mom sent her to me because she had accused a man on a college campus of rape and the police investigated and it had not happened. And it it was, even when you listen to her story, it didn't, it didn't make sense. Even to her, it, it didn't make sense. And I didn't know what, to make out of that. And I started doing regular weekly psychotherapy 
with her and I've been trained in social psychiatry and dynamic psychiatry and you get people's story and you you develop a relationship with them and then you kind of see as you go what what they need and how to help them. I worked with her for several years, probably three or four. And then she left to go to graduate school. She finished, she finished college. There were, during that time, there were times, usually whenever she was out on a date, where there would be, she would call me uh, as an emergency where she would be really upset and I couldn't always understand what it was she was upset about. And she, she'd be crying and I'd calm her down and t just listen and talk to her. And, and then she'd say, I'm okay now. And I'll see you at the next session. I didn't really think much about those episodes or what they meant. Um, and then in 1985, I got a call from her mother asking if she could bring her in to be hospitalized. They were in now in another state. I said, of course, oh, yes. And I was kind of staggered because I thought she was all better. And uh when I walked into the room to do the psychiatric evaluation, it was her, but it did it wasn't her. It was the weirdest thing I had encountered up until that time. And I had encountered some pretty weird things because she was moving like a little child. And it was it was very dramatic. And I remember saying to her, who are you? And she gave her name. And I, then I said, how old are you? And she said, I'm seven. Whoa. No, wait a minute. <laughs> now, this was somebody I thought I knew as well as I knew anybody in my family. This was not a stranger. And what then emerged over time uh, in the course of her hospitalization, which was just a, a couple of weeks, was that um, she was an incest survivor. And I was staggered. I was staggered that I had missed it. You know, by this time I had been in psychiatry a long time and I just could not believe that I could not know this incredibly important information. And her mother was able to confirm a lot of the surrounding details of what my patient was telling me enough to undo my kind of native skepticism about how could this be possible. And so that made it much harder to deny um, that I had really missed this. Now, looking back, I think there was some other things that um, prepared, kind of prepared the groundwork for this. So, I started seeing her in 1980. In 1983, so we're in this relatively small community, and I'm, it's a small hospital, and there's a president of the board and a very active ministerium uh, in the town. In 1983, two boys themselves together took acid and set a recording to go so they could say goodbye to all of their friends and relatives. They could express their hatred for all the people that they hated. And they handcuffed themselves together and jumped into a quarry to their death. One of them was the son of a local minister. About a couple of weeks later, the girlfriend of the boy who was probably the ringleader of this, the minister's son, um, she killed herself, shot herself in the heart. And she was the daughter of the president of the board of the hospital. And this, of course, got enormous coverage locally, but also 
a reporter from Philadelphia Magazine came up to do an investigative report uh, on these three adolescent deaths because it wasn't as routine as it has become for teenagers to kill themselves. And it was a it was really mysterious as to what what was going on, why I had met the one boy once because the school had called me in to see if there was anything I could do, because I think the school had a sense that the things were really going downhill. And I they forced this kid to come into a room with me, but he wasn't about to talk to me. And. I don't know that I had ever experienced anybody so filled with hatred as this kid was. And I said to the school people, I have no idea what to do. And we and we had no legal grounds to really do anything. Um, he had not overtly threatened suicide or homicide or anything. So so this I what I saw then was that this trauma affected the entire community, the whole hospital community, the school, all, everybody, because everybody was interconnected, all the churches, um, all the families. Uh, it, it was a system trauma. So that was, in retrospect, I think that's what set me up for when I then started to see people in our psychiatric unit. It was oh my God, this, something is going on here. This is really, this is really big. So we started asking all of our patients who came in with every kind of conceivable uh, problem. We had a, we had an open voluntary unit because another thing your listeners should know is that there were in general hospitals open voluntary psychiatric units pretty much everywhere so you could get care um you could if you were really in a crisis you could get away from home for a while and get into a place where people would listen to you and give you an opportunity to tell your story and we used a lot of art therapy and uh, psychodrama and movement therapy and so we uh, were integrating the expressive arts because that was what was done at the time, not because we knew how effective all of those modalities were for trauma, but because that was part of that. That's what I was trained in a program where the arts were really important. And so when I created my own, I did the same thing. Um, so we started asking everybody about their history of childhood trauma and other traumas. And we were profoundly shocked because everybody, virtually everybody had a history. And sometimes we had captured the history, just didn't know what to do with it. And at other times, we hadn't, we hadn't, we hadn't asked the right questions. And of course, there was also how painful it is for people to talk about their past trauma, particularly if it begins in childhood. We were absolutely floored at the amount of sexual abuse that people experience as kids, um, men and women. It was it was astonishing. I mean, we had all been taught it was really rare, you know, that 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 hardly ever happened to anybody. It happened, but it hardly ever happened to anybody. But and. In retrospect, several years later, the same reporter for the Philadelphia Magazine, his he then it, he later became the editor of Philly Magazine, is Stephen Freed. He came up again to the same area, the same neighborhood, to investigate a uh, police chief, local police chief, who had been tried for a pedophilia and was in prison. And we couldn't it could never be proven, but there was some indication it was possible that the two boys or at least one of the boys that had killed themselves had been had known this guy. So there's always the 
question later in my mind, well, were they, that would certainly explain what I saw back in 1983 and didn't, didn't understand. So by 1991, uh, we were in a team meeting trying to figure out how we had all been changed by this information. And my friend and colleague, Joe Fodorero, who's now gone, um, he said, you know, we've stopped asking people what's wrong with them. And now we ask what happened to them. And that's basically changed everything. We had stopped focusing on what their diagnosis was and and uh, thinking that in some way we could medicate it all away. But this was really, really hard information to take on board and to recognize about our culture. We, I mean, I had been trained at Temple Hospital. So Temple is in the middle of one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the country. Um, mostly African-American at this point with a history, uh, a history of um, it had been a, a very highly industrialized uh, area where um, people after the Civil War who had been enslaved came up to to the to the northeast to find jobs and the jobs were there the factories were abundant they needed a workforce and people moved in near their workplace but then over time developed prosperous neighborhoods but then over time as um the industry left and went overseas people were trapped they couldn't they couldn't get a weather. They weren't jobs anymore. Um, and if you were white, you could get out to the suburbs that were growing where where, you know, there were workplaces and stuff. But if you were black, the civil rights movement hadn't even happened yet. And so there was you were you were really stuck there. And so I the people that originally taught me as a mental health tech were all African-Americans. Um, and they, they were my friends. They were, I hung out with them. I mean, it was, there wasn't the kind of, it was, the segregation was still there, but not, not in the hospital. I didn't feel that as much as, you know, it, it, it was everywhere else. Um, so I did, wasn't as aware of what, um, people were going through, except when I started, they were all my patients once I started actually training. And then I would, I would find out what their lives were like. Uh, and that was excruciating. So, uh, so I had this division, you know, I, I was, I looked at what was going on at Temple and I said, oh, there's nothing I can do about these social problems. This is so huge. I can't keep people I can't get people jobs. I can't get them out of these impoverished situations where kids are eating lead paint. Uh, one of my teachers was was the person that discovered the connection between lead paint and and brain damage. All of the psychiatrists that taught me were active in the civil rights movement, in the feminist movement, in the LGBT movement. One of them was John Fry, who was the guy that was the first psychiatrist to go to an APA meeting and with a mask on and talk about how being gay was not pathological. So the, they, they were my teachers. Um, that was my milieu, but I didn't think I could impact it in any way because the problems were so big and so social. So I went out to the far distant all white suburbs <laughs> expecting well this will you know i'll be able to i'll be able to do something here and that's when we found trauma that's when we really discovered that this is everywhere there's different kinds of trauma but this is everywhere and that was overwhelming and so now bridging into the workplace because i know that's what you guys want to get to I want to talk a minute with what happened to us because we all got burned out. There was 
there was physical illness among among us as staff, physical illness, mental illness, divorces, affairs. Uh, it was the, the enormity of the problems was interesting in retrospect because we were we seemed to be okay before that, <laughs> right? Before we before we started really letting all this knowledge in. So recognizing the degree of pathology in the culture is disturbing. There's no question it's disturbing. And that you have to look at yourself and you have to look at your own issues and you are compelled to look at what happened to you as a kid and an adolescent and as an adult. You had to look at the relationships you were in. You had to you had to do your own work. It wasn't about us and them. It was really us, all of us, uh, in a culture that had become incredibly uh, pathological. So uh, that is what, that's the very long answer to what, to what you asked me. And I'll pause and take a breath for a minute. Yes, Sandy, thank you for sharing all of that. And it's incredible to hear about how you know, so long ago, we were talking about how macro sociological systems impacted the individual and how, you know, one of the things that we do at CTIP is really try and flip what the narrative has become, where burden and onus of trauma and resilience seems to be put so much on the individual that we've lost sight of how broader systems are impacting the individual. You brought up issues around redlining, around you know, sexual abuse and and just the magnitude of abuse, neglect and dysfunction that exists in people's lives, which reminds me also of the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study and what Dr. Rand and Dr. Flitty found in their groundbreaking study in the 90s as well. I'm curious, as you did that work at your own workplace, you know, you sort of left us off there. You've since 91, when all of that work took place, you've now developed models and have become a real international leader in terms of how this applies to all workplaces. We're not just talking about psychiatric care settings. We're not just talking about people that have as advanced of degrees and knowledge sets as you are. We're sort of talking about creating human workplaces all over in all industries all across the world. And so I'm curious if you can sort of pick back up there about how all of this applies to the broader workplace in all settings. Sure. You know, I think I think what we have to reckon with is that there really is no meaningful vision of health that we have mistaken what we call normal for health and it's radically, radically different. So we don't have a vision of what, what's a healthy individual, what's a healthy group, what's a healthy societal uh, society. No, there's no vision of that. That's not portrayed really anywhere except on Star Trek. So, so without that, you don't know what you're, you're aiming for. And because Human beings, our greatest strength is that we are very adaptive. It's also our greatest weakness because you can see it day by day. We are adapting to the most pathological behavior at every level of our system, including our national and state governments. It's unbelievable when you turn on the television. So we but we are adapting to it. We are adapting to astonishing levels of cruelty and hatred being being accepted as normal well how can this be how can we be getting sicker and sicker and sicker and more and more and more violent well i'd say we're building on about 12,000 years of intergenerational exposure to trauma and adversity it's not new it's been around as, as soon as people stopped being hunter-gatherers and settled down. We have been making war on each other ever since. So it means on the ground now today that 
the people running our systems, no matter what system you look at, you can start at the federal level and go right down to the workplace. The people running our systems, we know now, um, have been exposed themselves in some way to adverse childhood experiences because we know from the research and abundance of research that most people have in our culture. Um, and that and then there's all of the interpersonal violence that people are exposed to. You know, we know from the um, national studies that uh, 46 percent of women and 42 percent of men have been exposed to one or more types of interpersonal violence in their lifetime. Um, we know that if the more childhood adversity you've had, the more likely you are to suffer from a mental illness. We know the Secret Service has investigated that people don't just snap. These school shooters, church shooters, these people that are creating endless, they don't just snap. That the common theme is that they have experienced loss, failure, public humiliation in the days or weeks before they attack other people. So we, this none of this is mysterious anymore. We know where all of this is coming from, but our values have become radically altered. So we're no longer grounded as Americans in terms of shared values, purpose, and meaning. And the only thing that seems to really mean anything is money. And that's been going on as long as I've been alive. Um, the, the increased emphasis on um, that the only thing of value is in accumulating wealth. And that if you're not doing that, then you really don't have much value. So the result of that is that we've created a society where violence is now a constant threat to everyone, everywhere. And we forget that it's all completely preventable. So we all have to stop in every workplace. We have to stop being bewildered by what is happening and what's causing it. We know what's causing it. It's violence beginning in childhood, then further exacerbated by interpersonal violence of all kinds. We have to recognize that there are different levels of safety. And this came out of our work. It was clear that it isn't just physical violence that's an issue. There's also psychological violence and social violence and moral violence and cultural violence. And our culture has become violent in all those ways and it's increasing. It's not decreasing. And that means Every workplace has to establish some kind of system of meaningful interlocking values that everyone is held accountable to. And every workplace then has to have what are called, we know this now from going through COVID, universal precautions. So universal precautions with COVID were a you know, mask um, and universal precautions around violence. Uh, are really focused on every level of safety that um, we really have to be thinking about not just physical safety, but the, but the cruelty that is being used as a standard for how to treat people. Um, that systems are often under stress, become increasingly authoritarian, and they are likely, therefore, to become increasingly cruel and controlling. And human beings do not thrive in those kinds of environments. So we have to be really thinking about the values that are that are important. And everybody has to take responsibility for this. I have to recognize that silence is dangerous. 
that when you see something going on that is unsafe, you need to speak up. You need to collectively get other people involved to stop it. Whenever there is cruelty, injustice, um, really bad kinds of behavior, don't stay silent. And yet that's what people do. Uh, they, they, whenever they see bullying, they often go, Oh, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna deal with that because the bully's gonna attack me. Well, that's probably true if you do it by yourself. Um, so you have to organize, you have to respond collectively when you see this, the bad stuff going on. It's, it's really dangerous and people can end up being hurt. And it might be you if you don't speak up. Wow. I'm so struck by everything you've shared. And I really appreciate that you've highlighted the need to really shift toward a different set of shared values and to um, coalesce around common values that will help us take collective action. And I think that one of the reasons we're together today is because at CTIP, we've created a toolkit to really try to support folks who are seeing these challenges and are seeing the need for change and are wondering about where their spot in this movement is. And as we've been talking about today, we know that while the onus really does need to be on the system so that folks don't have to adapt to a dysfunctional and unhealthy and harmful way of being to survive, um, we also recognize that it's through individual and collective advocacy and action that this kind of change really will push organizations and systems out of the current power dynamics and to disrupt the status quo so that they will really be motivated to shift their ways of thinking and being and doing and relating. And so in that toolkit, we give some thoughts and resources. Um, and yet, of course, we know that sustainable change implementation, of course, looks different in different settings. And, you know, as much as we might wish that this was a formula we could give, there's really no checklist where we can say, okay, start here, do exactly this, and you'll be able to expand into this trauma-informed preferred future. So with all of that said, I, I think I'm curious to know from you, you know, for someone who is listening and is really wondering about either their place in this movement or what they might be able to do themselves to model the model in addition to really calling in and calling out when they see that violence happening. I wonder how you might help them think about action steps that they can take to catalyze or contribute to that broad, sweeping and sustainable trauma-informed change in their own workplace setting, whatever it might be, whatever their role is. Well, uh, you know, I think about my own experience that I've been talking about. And the first thing that um, we really had to do was get educated. We we, um, we joined up with the, the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies in order to find out, well, what were people, what in the world were people doing? I mean, how did they, you know, we didn't, it didn't get organized until after Vietnam, after it was really the Vietnam War that, that brought people the issue of PTSD onto the table. And um, so learning about it is critical. Uh, and there are all different ways. To, uh, there's, there's online material. There's books. We've created, my colleagues and I created um, a, a new program that just re it was released during the pandemic. Really, <laughs> So it's an online, complete online um, program called Creating Presence. And we use the word to embody a set of values, uh, the partnership and power, reverence and restoration, emotional wisdom and empathy, safety and social responsibility, embodiment and enactment, nature and nurture, culture and complexity, and uh, emergence and evolution. So those 16 words basically enable us to talk about anything. And it's all online. Uh, it's accessible to, It's a, there's an introductory track for everybody in an organization. And then uh, it divides into, because uh, we've specialized in all kinds of human services, it divides into a leadership track, a clinical tract, a direct service tract, and an indirect service tract so that everybody gets educated in slightly different ways depending on what their job is. Um, 
and a lot of universal precautions that are embedded within the training program. And it can, because it's mine, <laughs> we can modify it to any kind of industry. I mean, it, does, it we can do whatever we want with it. Um, I don't have to report to anybody else. So, so uh, it, it's kind of exciting to see what's happening. Uh, we've got beginning to get our first certified programs uh, in that educational process, but that's just the beginning. Uh, because then it gets down to how do you use the knowledge? Um, and that that really is where people have to um, re, really recognize that silence is dangerous, that they have to speak up um, and educate each other and create basically incorporate what they come up with as a result of the knowledge acquisition incorporated into their policies and practices what depending on what is going on in the workplace but that means that's involved uh, hr uh they have to really look at well how are we trauma informed and how are we not trauma informed how are we actually creating more stress for people what are our workplace practices how can we continue to do the work we have to do and uh, create what we need to create but not endanger people uh, in the ways they're currently being endangering. And that's, it's a process just like it was for us. It's a process of gradually understanding and coming to grips with this. And it's hard work. It is not for amateurs. <laughs> it's really hard to do. And because you have to look at your own stuff, there's no way around it. You have to look at, um, your own families and it doesn't mean you don't love them but it does mean there are intergenerational things going on that have been going on for thousands of years it's not your parents or your grandparents the knowledge this stuff was passed on to them so uh, you know i think we have to be uh, clear firm and compassionate about the past and about our ancestors and what they've tried to do and where they failed and start things anew if we're going to save the planet. I mean, what's at stake now isn't just our individual lives. It's really about whether whether life is going to continue on Earth. Uh, and it's really there's a lot of doubt about that because of all of the uh, the damage the wounding, the trauma we've inflicted on nature, on the environment, and our separation and dissociation from our natural environment, as if we were somehow, as a species, superior to all other species. And what we know now is that no, we are com complexly interdependent with every other living creature. And what we're doing, we are the first uh human beings we live in a new age that was declared in 2016 by geologists it's called the anthropocene age and we are the first generation of humans where the future of the planet is going to be determined by the choices human beings make that's that's huge and we are making incredibly bad choices uh everywhere <laughs> And we are met and I'm going to contend that the reason we're making those really bad choices is because of these thousands of years of multi-generational trauma that we have only not really understood anything about in the last couple decades. Ooh. So there's a big burden on all of us living today and on the future generations. You know, we have to pass the baton. We have to have to give these young people the knowledge they need that has been lost in the past, that's now been found again, and try to guarantee that it won't be lost again. And that's that's our challenge. How do we keep it going? Yes, Sandy. And, and you know, we we lead with the hope and belief that we can make the decisions to continue the well-being of each other and the planet as a whole. I mean, that's what keeps us in this work, right, is right. is understanding that 
you know, we may not have known exactly what had led to all of these horrible decisions for a millennium at, you know, in the past. But as we understand what has been driving these behaviors, we can make new behaviors and it will take all of us. But I'm curious, as someone who has been in this work for so long and as someone who, you know, could have gotten out of the work, done other things that may have been more individually beneficial. Um, what has kept you in the work? What keeps you motivated and continuing to do work, continuing to innovate and continuing to drive this movement forward? I think, as you expressed it earlier, it's hope uh, and and love. Uh, I, I, I am really scared that we are going to destroy life and that motivates me. It's love of the planet. It's love of life. It's love of people, despite <laughs> what a difficult species we are. Um, I love my dog. I don't want to see all the animals killed. I, I don't want to see the elephants no longer there. I, I, I don't want that to happen. And in the little tiny bit that I can do to um, keep hope alive and keep love alive, I think what else is the purpose of being alive if it's if it's not that? And I I have been very, very fortunate in my life. Um, I have a great deal to be grateful for. Um, I have not suffered most of what the people that I've worked with have suffered. And that being the case, I think I have a moral obligation to do whatever I can to reduce the suffering um, in any small way I can. Um, I don't like to see people suffer. I don't, I, I find it really like poisonous, like toxic to, to watch people make other people suffer. And so I, I think that's what keeps me going is this is not right. What's going on is not right. And we can prevent it if we get together. We know enough and we work collectively. Um, we, we can stop this. We can change the destiny of where humanity is going for now. We can't do it alone and we can't do it in one generation, but we can do it. We need transformative experiences. And so I'm trying to keep learning things, keep kind of pushing away the the veils that that are in front of reality. Um, and but not let that reality drag me under, you know, how to keep hope alive how to keep love alive, how to um, engage with other people like both of you to move this, move human evolution in a different direction than the direction that is currently obviously um, set on. And that's really what we're trying to do. That's the big ticket item that can we consciously, deliberately evolve into a different form of being a human being where life is really valued, where love is the most important thing in the world, not money. And um, where, where we respect other forms of life and each other. What, uh, what other purposes are for being alive? If not that. Oof. 
what you just shared is pretty darn profound, right? And I really appreciate that you capture that this is a long game. Sometimes I think people might get disillusioned. And yet we know that this is something that those of us doing this work, we likely will never get to see the really, um, this really this come to fruition, this shift, this healthy, compassionate, equitable, connected world that we want to see. And yet we know the steps to take. We know what must happen for humanity and all organic life and nature as we know it to continue to exist. And I think that's just a lot to sit with. And I, I imagine that our audience is just reeling, you know, taking that all in. And there's so much that you've shared today. We've gone into corners of the mezzo, the micro, the macro, all of it. And as we just wrap up this conversation, I'm curious to know what final things are on your heart or mind that we haven't asked about that you think are important to share with our listening community. I think it's important for people to step up to the plate being a baseball fan uh, that um, everybody has a role to play. And if you are depressed, if you feel lost, if you feel um, like you have no role to play, it's because you haven't found your purpose yet. And your purpose is part of what we're talking about. So you got to get on board. Um, we need everybody in this. Uh, we need everybody's participation. There is some way, even even if you are uh, a um, working at a very low level in the workplace, you can affect the people that you work with. And just like COVID spreads, <laughs> so do good things. The good things that we do are every bit as contagious as the bad things. Um, and so everybody has a choice every day, every minute of the day, whether you're going to do something for the good or not, whether you're going to speak up or not. And so that's those are my final uh, requests, I think, to send out there. Love that call to action. And for anybody who is curious to find out more about the different types of steps you could take, we would invite anybody to check out ctip.org, check out the materials we've put out there. We're going to include Dr. Bloom's materials in the description of this episode for exploration as well. And Dr. Bloom, we're just so thrilled to have had the opportunity to be in community with you today. We're grateful for your continued commitment to and leadership in this work and just really appreciate you sharing the insights and wisdom from your extensive work in making change with us here today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you, Jesse. And thank you both for everything that you're doing. I deeply appreciate your inspiration. Right, y'all. I'm going to stop our recording. Thanks, Sandy. Love you so much. That was awesome. Mm -hmm.